Don't forget, we do have a uh, another sunrise service this coming Easter, and uh, if you're interested in that, um, it's up at the uh, Skylawn Memorial, same place it was last year, at 6.30, sunrise is at 6.30, so you might want to get there a little bit earlier. If um, anybody wants to carpool here at the church, you can, you're welcome to arrange that yourselves, and then just drive up one way or the other. Hopefully it'll be a little warmer this year. Last year it was a little frigid, so come prepared. You never know what, what it's going to be like up there. We just finished our Fundamentals of the Faith class last week. was the, the 13th or 14th lesson that we've been going through on Sunday nights. And uh, someone said, well, what are we going to do next on Sunday nights? I said, well, I don't know yet. And we're going to wait till after Easter and maybe we'll start up another study. See if we can get some people to come out on Sunday evenings for that. Uh, As we turn our our hearts to God's Word, I just want to read our text for us this morning out of Romans chapter 11. We've been in Romans for several weeks now. Romans chapter 11 for several weeks, excuse me. Romans for several years, I guess. But anyway, Uh, I want to look at verse 33 today. Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Paul writes, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Um, this, this text of Scripture, all the way down to verse 36, as you continue to read there, it says, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now up to this point... We've been looking at a little uh, kind of mini-series here, God's purpose for the Jew and Gentile, and that's basically covered right up to the end of the the chapter here, but I kind of broke it out into a different little series. But as we were going through that in verses 29 to 32, 25 to 32 down there, um, speaking about God's purpose for the Jew and the Gentile, remember what Paul is talking about here. We, we talked a little bit about um, the idea that uh, God has reached out to the Jews as his chosen people. The Bible says that in the Old Testament. He chose them above all their nations, all their peoples, and he gave them the truth. And they were to be a conduit for God's truth to the world. Well, the conduit got a little stopped up, you might say. And so they decided to keep God's truth for themselves and hoard it and kind of look at everybody else as people who weren't blessed by God, but they were. And um, what happened was God finally said, okay, if you're not going to be obedient to me, if you're not going to acknowledge me, if you're going to follow these other gods, uh, then you know what? I'm going to take my truth to a different people. I'm going to branch out here. And that's what he talks about here in Romans chapter 11. And so because of Israel's unbelief, the Gentile world was given the truth of the gospel. And Paul was one of the conduits that he used. And just in the sense of God's humor, you might say, Paul was a Jew. And so, uh, as a Jew, he reached out to Gentiles, which is just unheard of, but that's what God commanded him to do, and that's what he did. And he saw the, him and the disciples, they saw great fruit from that. 
and that ushered in the church age. And so we've been living in this church age ever since the birth of the church at Pentecost. And, and now we see many Gentiles, uh, mostly Gentiles, coming to Christ. You see occasionally Jews coming to Christ. And so Paul talked about all that, that he didn't cut off Israel completely. We don't believe in what some churches believe in replacement theology. We believe that the promises to Israel are true and they will remain true. But for this period of time, God has kind of set them on the sideline and said, all right, if you're not going to behave, you're going to have a time out. I'm going to reach the Gentiles. He used the unbelief of the Jewish nation to reach the Gentiles. And then as Gentiles started to come into Christ, coming to faith in Christ, the church age was born. And we saw back in, in verse 25 of uh, Romans 11 there, he says, lest you be wise... In your own sight, lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Not a complete hardening. Some Jews are still saved. It's rare, but they are. And then he says, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so, basically what happens is, the Gentiles begin to get saved... When that time within the, I should have kind of made this clearer, I think, within the church age, when that time is complete, when the bride of Christ is full, the fullness of the Gentiles, everybody who is part of the body of Christ during this church age, when the last person comes to Christ during the church age, what happens? The rapture happens. The church is taken out of here. Israel during that time will look at what we have as Gentiles in Christ. And the Bible says that during that tribulation time, he will work in the hearts and minds of the Jewish people. And they will acknowledge the one whom they pierced. They will come to faith in Christ sometime during that time. So you have Israel rejecting the Messiah. They kill the Messiah. God reaches out to the Gentiles because of the unbelief of Israel. God uses the belief of the Gentiles to cause jealousy in the hearts and minds of the Israeli people. And they turn back to God after the fullness of the Gentiles. Now, some people ask me, well, are there going to be Gentiles saved during the tribulation? Yes. But they're not part of what we would call, quote, the church during the church age. Jews will be saved. Gentiles will be saved. People will be saved. We know that because at the end of the tribulation, many will lose their life because of their faith. So we, we've gone through all that only to conclude last week that, you know what, God's purpose for the Jew and the Gentile is the same. It's his glory. It's his glory. And he says there in verse 32, For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And so what he wanted us to understand clearly was that God's plan of salvation just didn't include the Jewish nation. See, that's what they thought. And he said, no, it's going to include all peoples if they come to faith in Christ. You know, that's the only road to salvation. There's not many roads. You know, you hear this, all the roads lead to Rome. Well, you know, many, many roads lead to God. No, that's not true. That's a lie. 
The Bible says very clearly that there's only one way to be reconciled to the God who created us, and that's through his son and his sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've seen as we've gone through this chapter that this this purpose for the Jew and the Gentile would involve the grace of God in verses 1 to 10. It involved the grafting of God. He grafted us in, and he's going to graft Israel back in as he uses that illustration of an olive tree in verses 11 to 24. And then it also involves the promises or the guarantee of God. And in verses 33 to 36, it talks about the glory of God. It involves the glory of God. And this is kind of, Paul is building up this chapter, and finally he, he ends with this glorious, just staccato kind of fashion of praise to the Lord. And so last week, we began to look at and understand that, you know what, um, to properly understand the salvation that we possess, we have to properly understand the God that saved us. And so we looked at the nature of God. We looked at the attributes of God. We talked about communicable attributes, which referred that to attributes that God can share with us to some degree. Things like, not completely, but to some degree, knowledge and wisdom and love and mercy. Because we're made in his image, the Bible says. But there's also other attributes that are incommunicable. In other words, they can't, we can't possess those. Things like self-existence, self-sufficiency, eternality. We looked at those last week. Self-existence means that God has no origins. All of you can be traced back to an origin. You just didn't pop on the scene one day. You had a mother and a father. Even if you don't know them, you still had one. You had an existence. Well, well, God is self-existent. Secondly, we looked at his self-sufficiency last week. It means that God has no needs whatsoever. None. Zero. And we talked about how some people believe, well, why did God create Adam and Eve? Well, because he was lonely and he needed company. No. God can't be lonely. He's self-sufficient. Thirdly, we looked at the eternality of God. It has to do with his everlastingness or his uh, perpetuity. God is always and always has been and always will be. And he will be the same yesterday as he was in all of eternity. And so it's important that we realize that God is a God who does not change his characteristics. You know, that's, that's unlike us, right? I mean, catch me on a good day, you'll see one Steve. Catch me on a bad day, you'll see another Steve. <laughs> it's not always consistent. See, that's the way it is with all of us. We also spoke of God's faithfulness to his people, that God is faithful in preserving his people, that God is faithful in dis- disciplining his people, and that God is faithful in glorifying his people. And this will take place. This is something that we can be sure of. We ended talking a little bit about God's mercy last week. And three important truths about God's mercy is that you can appeal to mercy. You can appeal to the mercy of God. It carries the idea, mercy carries the idea of having compassion for those in need. Having compassion for those in need. See, the problem is most people don't see a need in their life today for God. So God is not going to have mercy on them. He's not going to have compassion on them until circumstances bring them to a point where they realize, wow, I need you, God. 
Isn't that how it works even in our Christian lives? Sometimes we grow complacent. Sometimes we feel we grow self-sufficient. But then all of a sudden something happens. You get that health report. You get the financial report. You get the relationship report. Whatever it is, and it's not what it should be. And all of a sudden you realize, wow, God, help me. See? So you can appeal to mercy. And if you have received mercy, you must be merciful to others. That's key. That's characteristic of the child of God. We talked about this the last couple Wednesday nights at our Wednesday night Bible study going through 1 John chapter 3. Speaking of brotherly love. How we should treat other brothers and sisters in the faith. That we should have a servant's heart. That we should go the extra mile. That we should do whatever it takes to reach out and to serve those within the body of Christ. And then the last point last week was if you have found mercy, you must make it widely known. That involves the idea of taking this message of the life-saving gospel of Jesus Christ out to a lost and dying world. Well, as we begin in verse 33, I kind of want to begin a little, uh, the next series here is no one like God. No one like God. No one even comes close. And today we want to talk about the perfect knowledge of God in Romans 33. You see there where Paul kind of rattles off these four, uh, four things here for us. He, he points out very clearly that he wants us to see the wisdom, the knowledge, the judgments, his ways. All these things are right there for our picking. And so we want to start off today with the knowledge of God. This really deals with the greatness of God. The greatness of God. It has to do with his wisdom. It has to do with his omniscience. And so the question is asked, who knows the mind of God and who is the person that gives God advice? That's what Paul wants to know. The answer very clearly is no one. No one. God's mind can be pondered and, and maybe a little bit understood as we read the scriptures, as the scriptures reveal him to us. But we can never know completely the mind of God. Because it transcends our ability as humans. He is a God that we can never fully understand him or his ways. Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9 says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's is just in a whole other universe, beloved. You know, have you ever talked to somebody like that? You know, sometimes it's, it's amazing. You know, I, you talk to somebody who's very intellectual and you know engineers a lot of times. And you talk to them and they say, well, you know, I, I always ask people what they do. What do you do for a living? Oh, I'm an engineer. What do you do? And they start to tell me. And after like five minutes, I don't have a clue what they're talking about. I don't have a clue. And, you know, you'd be polite and you kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I, I have no idea what they're even saying, you know. And um, it, it, it's kind of a, maybe it's just my small-mindedness. But sometimes people are just, you know, their thoughts are not my thoughts. And yet that is what they've given their whole life to. I mean, it's amazing. 
And see, that's what God is saying. Isaiah is saying, God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. I mean, we think we get it all figured out, right? You know, when we go to God in prayer, we're going to pray, pray, God, you do this. This is what you have to do, God. And, you know, we find ourselves almost telling him what he needs to do in our lives. And God's, nah, I don't think so. Matter of fact, I'm going to do just the opposite. <laughs> and, and he does. And it's all for his glory and our good. And see, when you stop and you think of the idea that no one is like God, no one. And then you stop and think about the fact that, you know what? We can know him personally. Through the gift of salvation, through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. I mean, it is really an incredible thing. You know, we have to remember that we are not his counselor. We are not his counselor. And so we see here in this one verse the perfect knowledge of God, the profound wisdom of God, the unsearchable knowledge or the unsearchable judgments of God, and the amazing ways of God. Each one of those is just because of shorter time with communion, we're just going to deal with knowledge today, but even that is difficult. The perfect knowledge of God. Do you know that God does what he pleases, when he pleases? And we're just called to praise him for what he does, when he does it? I mean, that would be a good lesson for us to start off as we go through life. You just need to stop trying to figure out God. Stop trying to figure out why everything does it this way or simply starts this way or whatever it is. And just learn to trust God by faith. Because you know what? Last time I checked, he knows exactly what he's doing. And the last time I checked, we don't really have a good grasp of what we're doing most of the time. (laughs) You know, we struggle in that area. Do you know that God sees the future? He knows what's best now and then for us. We don't. How many of you can see the future? How many of you know what your week's going to be like next week? I mean, you may have your little schedule, your little schedule on your iPhone and, you know, all this. You don't know what's going to happen. You have the slightest idea. So we need to bow before him and his glory and exalt his worthy name. And that is where Paul is leading here in this chapter, at the end of the chapter. I remember reading in a commentary, there was a, a Bible teacher and somebody at a conference the, the Bible lesson was on the attributes of God. And, and one fellow came up to the speaker afterwards. And he, went, he said, well, you know, I've been a Christian for almost 40 years. And I've attended church faithfully pretty much all that time. Yet in all those years, I never heard anyone teach about the attributes of God. Actually, I've never even thought about them. His friend who was with him said, well, who did you think you were worshiping all that time? I mean, do you ever stop and think about that? Who are you worshiping? You come faithfully to church every week. Maybe Sunday night, maybe Wednesday night. Who are you worshiping? Most people, if they were to be honest, they would probably conclude they're worshiping a God like themselves. A God that they've created in their own image. A God that they feel comfortable with. See, I'm here to tell you this morning, beloved, that God is not like us. But we like to think of him as if he were. 
Because, you know, we can handle that kind of a God, a God who's brought low like us. We can even dismiss him at times as irrelevant, which we all do, by the way, with the priority in our own lives. The Bible tells us that God rebukes that kind of thinking. God says to those who treat sin lightly in Psalm fifty twenty one, he says, you thought I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and accuse you to your face, God says. See, don't grow too comfortable. God also says, we read in Isaiah 55, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. And yet we're constantly, we have this urge to reduce God to our level. It doesn't make any difference how smart you are or how long you've been a Christian. We all kind of fall to that at times. And nobody is above that. There's one story of Erasmus, a brilliant Dutch humanist. He thought this way. Martin Luther wrote him once saying this, Your thoughts of God are too human. So this is just what we do. But I'm here to say that no one is like our God. The very fact that God is not like us, when you stop and think about it, that's part of the problem. We can't relate to him. We looked at these attributes last week. The three, the incommunicable attributes of God. Self-existence, self-sufficiency, eternality. They belong to God and God alone. We can only make feeble attempts as we try to understand what they mean. Sometimes we say things like, well, God has no origins. God depends on no one. God had no beginning and will have no end. But what does that mean? Well, there's also God's communicable attributes that he can share with us. They're beyond our full understanding, but we can possess them to a lesser degree, the Bible says. And some of these qualities are found here in this ending of chapter 11 by Paul. And this is what he points out. He points out there the knowledge, the wisdom, the judgments, the ways of God. So let's look today at the knowledge of God. The perfect knowledge of God. The unique quality of knowledge possessed by God in its perfection. The idea that God is omniscient. The idea that God knows all things. And he knows them exhaustively. I mean, we also know some things. But even our knowledge of some of those things, even if you've put your whole life's work into studying on a certain job plane and a certain interest, engineering or medicine. Your knowledge is just partial. Your knowledge is imperfect. Well, how can we describe God's knowledge? A.W. Pink wrote this. I think it's up there on the screen for you. God is omniscient. He knows everything, everything possible, everything actual, all events, all creatures, 
of the past, of the present, and the future. He is perfectly acquainted with every detail in the life of every being in heaven and earth and in hell. Nothing escapes his notice. Nothing can be hidden from him. Nothing is forgotten by him. He never errs. He never changes. He never overlooks anything. He also said this, God has never learned from anyone. Now, there's some people that they don't learn from anyone either, but that's not a good trait to have, let me tell you. We should always be teachable, but God doesn't need to be teachable because he doesn't need to be taught. Because there's nothing that's not within the mind of God. A.W. Tozer goes on, he says, God cannot learn. Could God at any time or in any manner receive into his mind knowledge that he did not possess and had not possessed from all eternity? He would be imperfect and less than himself. To think of a God who must sit at the feet of a teacher, even though that teacher be an archangel or seraph, is to think of someone other than the most high God, maker of heaven and earth. God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter in all matters, all mind and every mind, all spirit and all spirits, all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures, every plurality and all pluralities, all law and every law, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feelings, all desires, every uttered secret, all thrones and dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and in earth, motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven and hell. Because God knows all things perfectly, he goes on, he knows no thing better than any other thing, but all things equally well. He never discovers anything. He is never surprised. He's never amazed He never wanders about anything, wonders about anything, nor except when drawing men out for their own good does he seek information or ask questions. That's the knowledge of God. See, when we reflect on God in that way, we begin to understand why Paul, the Apostle Paul, who was no slack himself. I mean, he had a pretty good mind about himself. He says, oh, the depth of the riches of the knowledge of God. He's admitting that God's knowledge is so much greater and superior than ours. That all we can do is just stand in awe of it. See, the perfection of God's knowledge, it's awesome, but it's also disturbing. See, that's why we don't try to think too hard about God (laughs) and things like his knowledge. See, if we just think of God about knowing things or other people or the idea that his knowledge is only awesome, it's amusing, almost like a reaction to the response of of a bunch of children at school who were asked whether they thought God understood computers. They asked him that. The majority of the kids said, well, no, how could he? How could he understand? He wasn't, you know, that was their thinking. 
Does God understand computers? Oh, yes. Every little part of that computer that creates havoc in your life at times. God knows exactly what's wrong with it. Although we know that when we think about God, when we think about it, we consider all that God knows about us. Stop and think about that. What God knows about you. What God knows about me. I mean, we don't mind an ignorant God. <laughs> someone who doesn't know that. Or, or a God who forgets. That's kind of fine. But what are we going to do with a God... The Bible says, before whom all hearts are open, all desires known. I mean, that's kind of threatening. I'm reminded, as a youth pastor, and even I see my daughter and and son-in-law doing this with their kids once in a while. I'll say, you know, I'm going to ask you a question. Kid get in trouble in the youth group. I'd bring him in the office. Hey, I'm going to ask you some questions about what happened on the retreat or whatever they got in trouble for. And I said, I just want you to know the questions I'm asking you, I already know the answers to. I'm just letting you know right up front. I already know the answers. And then I would ask the questions. And, you know, a lot of times when you think of God already knows the answers. He already knows everything about us. God's knowledge about believers is complete. About everybody, it's complete. Well, let's look at just four things here quickly about the perfect knowledge of God. When we think of, of God's perfect knowledge, when we think of a God who, who is so vast, so far superior to us, what should that do? Well, first of all, it should humble us. It should humble us. I think here of, of Job in the Old Testament. I mean, stop and think. God allowed Satan to attack righteous Job to demonstrate that a believer is able to love God solely for who he is and not merely for the blessings. We sang the song this morning. He gives and takes away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. So Satan attacks Job. Well, what does he do to Job? You know the story. He took away his possessions, killed his children. Wait a minute. He killed his children. He killed his children. He eventually attacked his health. I mean, Job was basically reduced to total misery in life. And I don't think it was a mistake that God left his wife. Curse God and die were were her words. I mean, what a wonderful lady she must have been. But see, even in the most wretched state of his being, he didn't blame God. The, the Bible tells us that. See, a lot of people, oh, I don't want to go to Job. I don't want to look. Why? It shows the grandeur of the God that we serve. That the Lord gave and the Lord takes away. That the Lord is in complete control. See, that was his amazing testimony in Job one twenty one. And you remember the story. At this point, Job's friends begun to come along. And basically, the rest of the book is a bunch of their speeches as they come along and judge and 
his answers back to them. I mean, they basically argued the fact that God is a moral God and that this is a moral universe and that bad things do not happen without good reasons. So what's the problem here, Job? What did you do wrong? Job must have sinned in some way. He must have brought these troubles on himself. Now, Job did not consider himself to be innocent of all sin, of course, but he knew that he had done nothing to deserve what was happening to him. He was right. What he did not know was that his suffering was the focal point of an invisible but very important spiritual cosmic struggle. All this time, for 37 chapters, God was silent. Have you ever been in that time in your life? Where you're just going through it? Trials, tribulations, and you're not hearing nothing. You're reading the Bible, you're trying to read it, and it says nothing. Nothing there. What do you expect God to say? We expect God to explain things to Job, or at least offer him some comfort. I mean, he's been through a lot, this poor guy, right? We expect God to tell him about Satan's accusations and, and reveal how, how that, that, that Job had been singled out because of his righteousness. And Job, I know that you're going to continue to trust even though Satan's attacking you. You know, this is all arranged by me and, and, and this is part of the deal. Hang in there, Job. But that's not what you find in the book of Job. Instead, we find God rebuking Job for presuming to think that he could understand God's ways even if they were explained to him. I mean, when you stop and think about that, when you think of, in the book of of Job, chapter 39, it says this, Do you know when the mountains, goats, give birth? (laughs) Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months as they fulfill? And do you know The time when they give birth, when they crouch, bring forth their offspring, and are delivered of their young. Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go out and do not return to them. Who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? To whom I have given the arid plain for his home and the salt land for his dwelling. He scorns the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the the, the driver. He ranges the mountains as his pasture and he searches after every green thing. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind him in the furrow with ropes? And will he harrow the, the valleys after you? Will you depend on him because his strength is great? And will you leave him your labor? Do you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich wave proudly. But they are the pinions and the, the plumage of love. For, he, for she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them or that the wild beast may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young As if they were not hers, though her labor is in vain, yet she has no fear because God has made her forget wisdom 
and given her no share in understanding. When she aroused herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and his rider. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like a locust? His majesty snorting is, is his majestic snorting is terrifying. His paws in the valley and exalts in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dis- dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword upon his rattle, the quiver, the flashing spear and the javelin with fierceness and rage. He swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, aha, he smells the battle from afar. The thunder of the captains and the shouting. It is by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south. Is it by your understanding? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the rock he dwells and makes his home. On the rocky crag and stronghold. From where he spies out the prey. His eyes behold it from afar. His young ones suck up blood. And where the slain are, there he is. And then in verse 1 of chapter 40, he says, And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. What is Job saying? Job is basically pointing out, the book of Job is pointing out the majestic knowledge of God. That should humble us in his presence. That should help us to understand that, you know what, all those things, all those questions, there's many in the book of Job. The answer is God. Who does this God? Who does that God? I mean, we're going to be embarrassed to think that we'll ever suppose that we could contend with God intellectually. We can't. We should appreciate the perfect knowledge of God. It should humble us. Secondly, it should, what? Comfort us. It should comfort us. Because it's not only humility that the knowledge of, of, of God, we should not only get humility from the knowledge of God, his great, great and mighty knowledge, but we also find that it should bring us comfort. Well, why? Because God knows us. Have you ever been lost, maybe as a little kid, shopping mall or amusement park? You don't know anybody? What does that strike in your heart? Fear. Most children are terrified when they lose their mom or dad or their family or their group. And you can see the, the joy even in tears when they're reunited. Why? Because they know them. In a vast sea of unknown faces, all of a sudden they spot mom. and Wow. Why? Because mom knows that daughter or that son. God knows the worst about us. And you know what? He loves us anyway. Doesn't that bring you comfort? He also knows the best about us. Even when other people don't. Maybe blame us for things that are not our fault. God knows. We don't need to be so hurried to run to the defense of ourselves all the time. Job expressed comfort in Job 23.10. In God's knowledge of him, he says, He knows the way that I take. 
When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. Job 23.10. Remember Hagar, Abraham's concubine who gave birth to Ishmael. Early in the, the story, Hagar was so badly mistreated by Sarah, Abraham's wife, that the story says she decided to run away. God appeared to her to say that he knew what was going on in her life, that he knew what was suffering. But you know what? That she would return to Sarah and submit to her. And as a result of that revelation, Hagar gave a new name to God, which is best translated, you are the God who sees me. Genesis 16, 13. Do you know that God sees you? No matter what? When no one else does? See, it was a comfort to Hagar to know that God saw her, that God knew about the suffering that she was going through. There's an illustration of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. The second year he was in London when he preached a sermon on the text in which he told the story of a visiting the cell of a man who had died while imprisoned. And so the cell, the story says, was down a long winding stair of a castle where light never penetrated. And it was only as large as the man himself. Sometimes they tortured him, the story says. Spurgeon writes, but his shrieks never reached through the thickness of the walls. It never ascended the winding staircase. Here he died, and there, sir, he was buried, pointing to a spot on the ground. Yet, said Spurgeon, there was no one who did see him and knew the extent of his suffering There was someone who knew him, knew the extent of his suffering, and that was God. Sometimes as a chaplain, you're called out to be with someone as they're passing away. And I remember one such call out, I was just just timing. I couldn't get there in time, and and the individual passed. And I remember the heartache on the the family's face, like... I wish you would have got here. I mean, you're able to say what you can say in that, that situation. And one thing I said to them was, you know what? This individual didn't die alone. That God knew exactly what's going on here. That should comfort us. Thirdly, it should encourage us to live for God. One of the greatest psalms that, that people love to read is Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Turn over there with me, if you will. Psalm 139. We'll close this up here pretty quick. Psalm 139. Just follow along as I read this for us. It speaks of of the incredible knowledge of God. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, oh, Lord, you know it altogether. 
you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. For you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way of everlasting. That psalm should be an encouragement to our heart. That no matter where you go, no matter how hard you try to run away from God, He is there. He is there. Even when you don't feel it. Even when you don't sense it. He is there. And then the last thing here, it should help us to pray. Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount when he encouraged his followers to pray to God confidently, expecting answers. He said in Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 to 8, he said this, When you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they know, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need even before you ask. Isn't that amazing? The fact that God knows our needs even before they come out of our mouth, even before they enter our mind. Isaiah 65, 24 says, Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. See, when you stop and you, you think of God's knowledge... For believers, it should do those four things. When you think of God's knowledge in unbelievers, it's a vastly different scenario. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, it says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Trust me, beloved, every human Heart, every human soul will one day stand before a righteous, holy, perfect God with complete knowledge. He will look at them 
and they will have to give an account for everything. God sees you. All you have to do is look at the illustrations there, Cain, Achan, Ananias, and Sapphira. God sees what's going on. And sometimes he has to discipline or even punish, in the case of unbelievers, those who are not seeking his ways. I mean, when you stop and you think, how does God know all this? It's because his, his, his knowledge is complete. It's perfect. And if you're here this morning and you have not yet trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I pray that you would not wait for that day when you need to stand before him. You will stand before him and you will give an account. Because the Lord Jesus Christ died so that sinners just like you and I are saved from that judgment. The way to escape God's judgment, beloved, is to go through the cross, to come to Christ, to come to the sacrifice that was made on your behalf, to believe on him, to trust him, to follow him, to yield your life to him, to repent, to turn from your sins, and follow the Savior. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and truly trust him and follow him, the Bible clearly says that you will, you will, be saved. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for your complete knowledge, your perfect knowledge of everything that goes on in our lives. And Lord, I pray that we would seek forgiveness when we try to hide things from you, thinking that somehow you're not seeing what's going on. Lord, you know us completely altogether. And so, Father, I pray for those in this room who have yet maybe to put their faith, their trust in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would do that work of calling them to yourself through the power of your spirit, through the power of your word. That you would show them their need of a savior, their need of forgiveness for their sin. And Lord, you're the only option that's there. Jesus, you yourself said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And so, Father, we pray this morning for those hearts. We pray that they would be drawn to you. And as believers, I pray that we would be motivated to take this gospel message of forgiveness and love and grace and mercy out to a lost and dying world desiring to share it with those who have yet to trust you as their Lord and Savior, Father. I pray that you would enable us to do just that. Thank you for our time of worship and celebration of your communion time today. Just pray that you would bless the remainder of our day. We ask these things in Jesus' name.